Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Welcome to part eight of our class on theology. Today we'll take a look at a number of confusing scriptures that seem to indicate that hell is a place where the wicked are consciously tormented forever. We'll look at texts that talk about weeping and gnashing of teeth, as well as how the worm will not die, nor the fire be quenched. We'll consider biblical phrases like eternal punishment, eternal fire, and everlasting contempt. Last of all, we'll analyze two verses in Revelation that use the language of eternal torment to describe the final punishment. Here now is our theology class, part eight, Challenging Annihilationism. The uh, Bible, as I understand it, teaches that the punishment of the wicked is destruction as opposed to eternal conscious torment. We have scores of texts that teach the uh, wicked will perish, that will, they will be cut off, that they will be killed. Here's a couple of texts that I think are really helpful. And so the first one there is uh, Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So this is the word Gehenna here, and the point on this verse is that hell is the place where body and soul are destroyed. It doesn't say where they're tormented endlessly, but where they're destroyed. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. So you have opposites, living forever, eternal life, or perish. If eternal conscious torment were true, it should be living forever in a happy place or living forever in a really painful place, right? Um, as opposed to perish and eternal life. And then uh, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So you have death versus eternal life. And then Psalm 37 over and over says the wicked will be cut off. The wicked will be no more but the righteous will inherit the land. Over and over, all these verses say the wicked will be cut off. Cut off. I don't know why that's the, the hand motion for it. In addition to these supporting texts, we also have three logical arguments uh, for annihilationism, which is, once again, the belief that the, the wicked are annihilated rather than tormented. One is penal substitution. So, penal substitution is the belief that Jesus paid the penalty for sin in our place. So, penal is penalty. Substitution is in our place. If the penalty for sin is eternal conscious torment, then Jesus, think about it, did not pay the penalty for sin because he only was in the grave three days. Number two is the cruelty of God. I mean, why would God set up such a world where... He knows the majority are going to be tormented forever and ever and ever and ever. I mean, it's just like cruel and unusual is what we say is disallowable for capital punishment. 
it's, it's not just justice, it's just a, a question of God's character itself. If he's a God of love, if he's a God of mercy, why does he need to set up the world in such a way that people are tormented forever and ever and ever and ever? It just, that's, think about it, that is the cruelest thing anyone could ever go through. Almost by definition, is torture forever, right? There's kind of like a character issue there. And then number three, proportional justice. If a person has sinned like crazy for 80 years and they're tortured for 800 years, how is that proportional? That would be off, right? But here's the thing, 800 years, you're not even getting started on eternity yet. It's way worse than that. After a million years, 8 million years, you're still no closer, right? So there's a proportionality to like how much you sin and how much you suffer that is way out of balance if it's eternal conscious torment. What? I logical argument. You're <laughs> terrible. They, I don't think they're worth much. Okay, well, I, I put mean, them in there anyhow. I can do two for the last two that would, like, for the cruelty of God, it's the justice of God, because God loves, God's just. And then uh, you send somebody else on the cruelty of God, or the proportional justice, one man's sin is like, he didn't just set up the world, it, you know, it's because one man's sin. Uh, that one sin is it's proportionally unjust that man would sin, so therefore he must suffer proportionally to whatever, for forever and ever. Part of it is he's just God, he can do whatever he wants to do. And we don't really have, we can't question it. I mean... You want, you have a comeback to that? You're shaking your head. Well, I just, I, I, I just, inside, I can't, I know you're not, you're just playing devil's advocate, I'm yeah. assuming, but, but uh, I just can't stand the, uh, the arguments that, that would let God be whatever he, whatever he wants to be. Like, as if he is not the embodiment of goodness and, mm -hmm. and all those like if goodness has any meaning, then he can't be somebody who will uh, like torture or torment somebody for any period of time, let alone like eternity. Like we can argue about what the Bible says, as we will later this week, about violence and things like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, just any anybody that would torment someone for a long period of time, we would call a cruel monster, right? So why not put God in that category if if he's doing it for eternity? So this really solves the problem of evil question. Well, alas, we are not limited to just these smattering of texts or these logical arguments. There, there, are, there are dozens and dozens of texts in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that clearly teach that the, the, the wicked will perish, be destroyed, be cut off, be no more. All right? So we have lots and lots of texts. And then... Let's just consider some of the difficult texts, right? And to the, again, to, to you, these might not be difficult, but they, I still classify them as difficult texts. So you have texts where we have weeping and gnashing of teeth, okay, in fire. We've got Matthew 8, 12, uh, 13, 42, and there's some other verses in the, in the Bible on this, but here, here are just like two, two texts. I'll just read it to you. Matthew 8, 12 says, While the sons of the kingdom... Well, let me back up to the previous verse. This is Matthew 8, 11. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and will sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
okay? And so the other one there, Matthew uh, 13, 42, says they're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is talking about the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the tares and the wheat. And so these are like the wicked people are thrown into a fiery furnace and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So traditionally, people say weeping and gnashing of teeth is a symbol of great suffering. Have you ever cried because you were suffering or you were injured or you were suffering physical pain? And so this is, they take this as a description of hell. I buy into that weeping and gnashing teeth definitely means they're suffering. Yeah, yeah. So do you, think, do you think this is a difficult text? And if so, what is the solution to it? I don't think it's difficult because it doesn't give any time frame. Yes, very good. There's no time frame specified. So this, this is referring to suffering, no question. It has the fire. There is a fire. I think, I think we all believe in a fire, but it doesn't say anything about the time period. Yeah, it takes other texts to make this difficult. Right. Here's something else to consider. There's another text that, that comes up. This is Acts 7, 52 to 54. And uh, this is where Stephen is preaching. And they get so furious with him that in verse 54 here, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. And this is the same exact phrase as gnashing of teeth. It's just when it's talking about Stephen, they, they're grinding their teeth. When it's talking about hell, they're gnashing their teeth. It's, just, it's, the, same, it's the same phrase. You know, some of the older versions are sometimes more honest. King James Version, they gnash their teeth and they gnash on him with their teeth. So uh, they kind of dropped the ball a little bit there. Uh, the New King James fixed that. They said they gnashed at him with their teeth. And then the NASB, they began gnashing their teeth at him. Then the ESV finally softens it to, oh, they ground their teeth. You know, it's very, very mild. You know, they're just like grinding their teeth. Like when you sleep at night and sometimes people grind their teeth or whatever. I don't know. But it's actually the same uh, words that we find in many other places about gnashing of teeth. And the reason why they're gnashing their teeth is not because they're suffering physical pain. It's because they're super angry. They're furious. That's why you gnash your teeth. It's not because you're in a lot of pain. So, at least in this verse. So, weeping connotes grief. Gnashing of teeth is anger, not suffering necessarily. Uh, could also mean suffering, but regardless, Josiah's point still stands. There's no time limit specified. We all believe in a fire. We all believe in a judgment. The question is, how long does it last? Does it last for a finite time or an infinite time? That's the question. And uh, based on these other verses, we think it's a finite time that results in destruction. All right, we good with that? All right, so here's another one. We have verses where it talks about the unquenchable fire, and it says, the worm does not die. Okay, so we have two texts. <laughs> the immortal worm. All right, so just a couple of quick very quick points on this. There's one where it's a saying about John the Baptist. Matthew, or it's a saying of John the Baptist. In Matthew 3, 12, it says, uh, John the Baptist is talking about Jesus. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And there are a number of other texts that talk about this unquenchable fire. They're all pretty much the same, though. 
and it, it really comes down to the question of what does unquenchable mean? I submit to you that unquenchable does not mean the same as eternal. It just means you can't put it out early. All right? I have a fireplace. If I get a fire really going, it's unquenchable. You know what I mean? If it's really going, I'm, I'm saying this thing is really cooking. You can try to put it out, but if you get too close, it'll burn you. You know what I mean? Like, it's just really hard to deal with. And uh, there, there are fires that are like that. Have you ever seen a building that's on fire and the fire department's there and they've got all their hoses out and they're spraying all their hoses and yet the fire's still burning? Well, it's a wildfire tactic. You control the zone and let everything burn. The last example of all is the wildfires of California, right? They could dump water on that till the cows come home. Do you have that expression in Canada? Uh, you have to stop me if I use an Americanism. But... Um, what, what do they do instead, Josiah, is what? They, what do they, bulldoze it or they... Yeah, they just create ditches, you know, like control it. Right. It doesn't burn past where it is. Right. Because you can't put it out. What, if a fire gets going hot enough, you just can't put it... You can, you can put whatever you want on it, but it's too big or too intense. That doesn't mean it's an eternal fire. That fire went out and then we got mudslides. Wasn't it, right? wasn't it Augustine who tried to scientifically explain how... Because he understood that a fire doesn't burn without fuel. So he talked about how matter would continually regenerate to be consumed in this eternal hell. Yes, I think I, I have heard that. I, I, don't, I never read that part of what he said, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Have you ever seen a, a, a fire raging so hot? You know, I mean, if, it, if this unquenchable business refers to the quality of the fire, it does not refer to its duration. Okay. Um, but then we get this really interesting text here in... Uh, Mark 9, uh, 47, it says, uh, this is the other one I had in your notes there. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. That would hurt. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And that's the word for hellfire or Gehenna. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And he's quoting from the Old Testament here. In fact, uh, this is one of these ones where it just pays so richly to go right back to the original quotation and look at what it says there. So you could just put in your notes, CF, Isaiah 66, 24, which is where this quote comes from. Isaiah 66. And at the end part here, 66, 22, it says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Any thoughts? Worms eat dead things. Okay. Worms eat dead things. It explicitly says the dead bodies. Aha! Uh -huh. It says dead bodies! It doesn't say disembodied souls. It says eternally separated from God, bodies. <laughs> what it says is, this is talking, think about it like this. There's a great battle. There are a lot of dead people. So what are you going to do? You round them up, you bury them, or you burn them. Right? There's a big pile of dead bodies. This is totally gross. But like this is like the final eschaton, the final last day. And there's this final battle. And there's all these dead bodies. 
This is the very, think about it, this is the very last verse of all of Isaiah. <laughs> Something, huh? Some way to end a book. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now this is not saying that these bodies are going to miraculously regenerate as the worms eat them. Okay? <laughs> That's just weird. I mean, you're reading that in. I think the assumption here is that the worm's not going to die, the fire's not going to be quenched, until it's consumed all of what's available in there. Okay, it doesn't say that. You're just supposed to recognize that that's the scene of what's going on here. And uh, there's another verse that's really cool about this. Actually, it's probably in the cross-references. I would bet they have the guts to put it in there. Chickens. Uh, it's like ashes under your feet. I could have sworn it was like Ezekiel 34. Or Mount Malachi. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I'm not going to take credit. No, you, you got that. That was Dan, why don't you read it for us since you... Uh, just you verse know. three, yeah. Or let's do verse two, too. I like the skipping calves. That's nice. Uh, but for you who fear my name, the son of the of righteousness shall rise with wing healing in its wings. You shall go out leaving like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord. So this is another good verse for you to write down next to that Mark one. You write down Isaiah 66, 24, or whatever it was, and then you put down next to it Malachi 4, 3. Okay? Because what we're talking about is dead bodies that get eaten by maggots and burned up with fire, and then in the end, when it's all said and done, they're ashes under the soles of your feet. This is actually proving annihilationism, not eternal conscious torment. All right, on to the next one. We go an increasing level of difficulty. And so now we look at a classification of verses where we find the phrases eternal punishment, eternal fire, and everlasting contempt. And these include Daniel 12.2, Matthew 18.8. Okay, the last one is Matthew 25.41 and 46. And it's like, look, I'm not, I'm not always able to be exhaustive with all, this, with all this stuff, but like I can at least give you sort of like a smattering of representative texts. <clears throat> there may be other verses similar to these, but these are the ones that, you know, I've chosen to represent this particular classification of difficulty with respect to annihilationism. Uh, so the first one, Daniel 12.2, you probably have read before because it's like a major text that we use for conditional immortality. And it says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So people will say, oh, it's everlasting contempt. You must be alive forever in order for that contempt to go on, that shame to go on and on. What would you, how would you respond to that? Even Judas is dead, but yeah, his contempt is carried Yeah, you don't have to be alive to still be held in contempt. There are two ways to think about it. It's the word de-ra-on. De-ra-on. I'm working on my Hebrew, so you have to let me practice on you a little bit. <laughs> Hebrew's really bad. Uh, Daniel's, I'm sure, much better. It's the word translated abhorrence. We just actually saw that. Isaiah, remember this Isaiah 66, 24? It's right here. We just saw this. It says, they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. 
that, uh, that Hebrew word right there, this is the word, it means uh, abhorrence, contempt. And so in Daniel 12, 2, it says they're going to be raised to everlasting contempt. It's the, same, it's the same exact word. In this case, what was it talking about? That their bodies are dead, that they're eaten by worms and fire, and that there's a shame, an abhorrence, a disgust. They're held in contempt. So there are two ways to think about it. Either you are experiencing contempt, or you're thinking contemptuously about somebody else. So in this case, with Daniel 12, 2, the, our solution is to say, these people don't have to be alive forever to suffer everlasting contempt, because those who are living can hold them in contempt. That is, look at them as repulsive, disgusting, because they saw the demise and it was gross. Um, and, it, and it is shameful to reject God, ultimately. Okay, so that one was easy. Maggot-infested corpses are disgusting. That's basically what we're saying. All right, Matthew, and if anybody disagrees with that, I don't know what to do. All right, Matthew 18, 8 was the next one. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Booyah. Booyah. There it is. Um, there are two, three. There are three possibilities. Here are the three possibilities. Actually, I wrote two and then I came up with a third one. So I got I to gotta fix that, <laughs> which means there could be four. All right. So here we have it. Possibility number one, the fire burns forever. That could be what eternal fire means. It could just be a fire that lasts forever. After consuming the unrighteous, the fire continues to burn as a memorial, maybe, to remind us never to do that. That's possible. Uh, number two, eternal fire is a hyperbole. In other words, it's like sometimes the prophets will speak in, in a, a figure of speech called a hyperbole where they will exaggerate something to make the point as strongly as possible. And so, in other words, this fire is going to be so painful, so serious, that it's eternal fire, but it, you know, it's a metaphorical usage. And then number three, it's the fire of the age. It's the fire of the age to come. It's the fire that belongs to that age. It's the age to come fire, right? So you have age to come life, life in the age to come. You have fire in the age to come. In the age to come, the fire is really hot. It burns and it consumes, but it doesn't necessarily last forever. Another possibility is that this word here, aeonios, can also mean a period of time. It doesn't have to mean eternal. So it could be that that fire burns for that, and this is, this is really a tantalizing idea, that the fire burns for that millennial period mentioned in Revelation. Just check this out with me. This is kind of like out on a limb here, but just check it out. Revelation 19.20 says, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. This happens in chapter 19 when Jesus comes back. I don't know if you know Revelation or not, but in Revelation, Jesus comes back in chapter 19. It's exciting. Chapter 20 is this millennium. And so these guys, the beast, the false prophet, they're captured and they're thrown into the lake of fire at the beginning of the millennium. And then in chapter 20, verse 10, it says the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. So at the, at the, before the thousand years, you have a lake of fire. After the thousand years, you have a lake of fire. 
What if that lake of fire burns for a thousand years? What if it burns the whole time in between? Because, and this is what the NASB does. The NASB assumes this because it says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We'll, we'll get to the forever and ever part in a minute. But what if that fire really does last for that whole period? Whereas the ESV takes a different stand on it. It says where the beast and the false prophet were. So the ESV assumes that they were there and they were destroyed, whereas the NASB says they are there and they're like still Will suffering. Back to the first verse before you yeah. Nineteen twenty. Okay, yeah. So it says they were thrown on the and the rest were slain. There you go. So this doesn't even apply to all the people. This is talking about the Those the Antichrist and the false prophet. Well, I'm just saying, like, it could be that there's a fire that lasts for an age, and so the word age fire, eternal fire, is the perfect description for it. I don't know. I'm just saying, like, this is a speculation. Or it could be just, like, the fire of the age to come, or it could be that the fire literally burns forever. It doesn't necessarily mean that what's put in it burns forever as well. What were you going to say? Oh, I think it probably falls into one of the things you said, but it's, it's not that the, the fire is necessarily eternal, but the consequence of the fire right. lasts forever. Right, certainly. Consumption. Right, there's no question that there's no going back. So here's a really interesting verse that will help us out on this as far as, like, the prophetic option. And uh, this, is, this is really interesting. It says in Jude 1.7 that just as Sodom and Gomorrah... Now, Sodom and Gomorrah suffered fire. The fire came down. They were destroyed. They weren't tortured forever and ever, but they were destroyed. And they still are in condemnation today. We still hold them in contempt, don't we? Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That fire that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah is called here eternal fire. So they're an example because they've already suffered a punishment of eternal fire. Now, how, again, I, I don't have all the answers here, but if they have suffered eternal fire and yet that fire is still not burning today, I can't look it up at Google Earth and see the fire burning, then eternal doesn't mean it goes on forever and ever always when it referring to a fiery judgment, right? If you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, you read Genesis 19, you have Lot and his family get taken out, and then the next day, what's his face? Abraham looks over and there's like smoke coming up from, from the plane, right? It's destroyed. It's not like the fire's still going. It's just the smoke is, is there. That's all you hear about it. You never hear. There's no other place in the Bible you hear, oh, and we visited Sodom and Gomorrah and we saw the eternal flame. Hey, let's just uh, mention one other verse here. Second Peter 2.6 says that Sodom and Gomorrah uh, were turned to ashes. He condemned them to extinction. So this is, this is another relevant text to the whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing. In Jude, it says they suffered eternal fire. In 2 Peter 2.6, it says they were turned to ashes and they were condemned to extinction. So eternal fire can result in extinction. Not necessarily ongoing suffering. All right. Now, again, this might seem weird to us. This might not be the way we talk. But this is trying to get into the biblical mind for how they think about things. They're in a different culture, a different language. So it's, it's, it's helpful. Here's, here's another one that is probably just going to blow your mind. Uh, this is Jonah 2.5. Jonah 2.5. The waters closed in over me. 
Can you read this, five and six, Kyle? Yes. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. All right, so you see how he uses the word forever there, Jonah the prophet. He's like, yeah, I went down, the bars closed upon me forever. And then in the next breath, yet you brought my life up from the pit. You know what I mean? So like forever doesn't always mean forever. It might just feel like it's going to be forever. Or it might be so intense that you're like, this is going on. I don't know like exactly how to explain it. But they don't always mean forever when they say forever. We say that like when you like get in a car wreck, like you're like retrospectively looking at it, it's like it felt like it took forever. Right, you know, like right. You see this car coming out, you're like, I'm like flash before my eyes. Kind of thing. All right, the last one in this uh, category was Matthew uh, 25, 41, which says eternal fire. We already talked about that. And then 46, uh, it says these will go away. These are the goats. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And this, this I think, really uh, falls under the explanation that Daniel just mentioned a second ago, where he said the effects of it last forever, not the experience of it. So eternal punishment doesn't refer to the ongoing suffering, but the end effect. So once you suffer in the lake of fire and you're destroyed, it's an eternal punishment. You cannot come back from it. Another way to say it would be is permanent. And then we have the last uh, text, tormented day and night forever. These are the hardest ones, just for your information. Revelation 14, 9 through 11 and 20, verse 10. And I think that's it for, yeah. Okay, so Revelation 14, 9 says, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Pretty strong text there, right? And then uh, the other one was Revelation 20.10, which we actually just read a minute ago. But I want to look at the second half of it now, where it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This one is not so challenging because it's really talking about the devil. And it's like, yeah, if he gets tormented forever and ever, wouldn't ruin my day. But uh, this other one here in Revelation 14 is a much more significant text because this is talking about anyone in verse 9 who worships the beast and his image. These are talking about regular people. It's not talking about the Antichrist. It's not talking about the devil. It's talking about somebody that gets deceived by them. I think what we have really is two things going on. One is this forever and ever language. You should not actually take literally. And then the other is to recognize that this is a vision. Okay, and in Revelation, there's the vision, and then there's what the vision means. Normally, it's very easy to separate the two, okay? There's one place where he sees a harlot on a, not a purple dinosaur, on a beast, purple dragon. Is it purple? Or is it red? I don't know why I'm thinking like purple dinosaur. I got like Barney stuck in my head. <laughs> this is... There's this prostitute, and she's riding this, like, red dragon around, and it's got seven heads and ten horns, right? 
Like you're supposed to get that this is a vision. There's not actually going to be a prostitute on this like beast thing walking around like over this way, over this, you know, like that's like when you read that in Revelation, you get it. You're like, all right, well, who does the woman represent? What does the beast represent? Right? Those are the questions you ask yourself and you're reading it and, you, and, you, and, you, and you're, you're, you're not sure. And then it's like, the woman is Babylon. Well, Babylon's a city. You know what I mean? So you're like, okay, so it's not talking about a loose woman. It's talking about a city that's in rebellion against God. Probably there's loose women and loose men in the city, but that's not really the main point. It's being personified as that. Okay, so you have the extreme personification and then the actual reality of the prophecy. Same thing with this. He actually did see this fire, right? And it was the kind, it was the kind of vision that communicated to him that it went on forever and ever and ever and ever. But what is the reality that that picture corresponds to? We get that clearly in just like an, a couple verses later. All right, so in verse 10 it says, they're going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then he sees this uh, throne and these books are open and then everybody else gets judged. And then it says, death and Hades gave up all the people. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So this is all still in a vision. Now, is death a person? It's a concept. It's a concept. So how do you have a fire burn a concept? It's a vision. Don't stress out about it. You've had some weird dreams, right? But then what's the interpretation? Here's the interpretation. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the, in the vision, he's seeing people being tormented. He's seeing this like Dante-esque kind of like, ah, and there's smoke going up and it's going on and on and on forever and ever. But then he interprets it for us and he says, this, this is the second death. Now, if death means anything, you can't be alive. If something is, is light, it's not dark. If it's black and white, it can't be color. If it's, you know, hot, it can't be cold. Right? If you're dead, you cannot be alive at the same time. Um, and then the other text that is very helpful is uh, verse 8 here, 21.8. But for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, and for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He says it twice. And if we say the lake of fire is really the second life, and we interpret it literally, we've actually just gone against the intention of the document itself, the, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation shows you a picture and then it gives you an interpretation. If you take the picture literally and then use that to overturn everything else, you've, you've rested scriptures. You've twisted the scriptures. One last verse to show you on this. And, and hey, if you are interested in this subject and you want to get super deep into it, go to RethinkingHell.com. Because not only are they going to have a a longer explanation than what I just gave you here. They also have debates. They have a, a fairly decent pod. Well, the early podcasts were really good. Um, but they have debates where you'll see Chris Date, who's like the main guy, debate against people who hold eternal conscious torment. And you'll see how he handles these verses. And it's a slam dunk. I mean, it's not even like a fair fight. Like our side is winning the day in a big way. One last text, though, to consider because we're out of time is uh, Isaiah 34. This is what I was conflating the Malachi one with in my mind. Isaiah 34, verse 9. You want to write that down. Dale, could you, or Elliot, could you read this to us, 34, 9, from the screen there? The streams of Edom shall be turned into the pit 
and her soil into sulfur, her land shall become burning peat. Night and day it shall be not be quenched, its smoke shall not give up forever. From generation to generation they shall lie waste, nor shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess its hour, and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it, and the plumb line of emptiness. All right, that's good enough. Let's see, verse 13, there's thorns that grow over its strongholds. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because this is a, a judgment prophecy, and it's against uh, the country of Edom. Verse 9 there, you see it, the streams of Edom. And uh, look at the language. The streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch. Pitch is like a flammable, it's like oil. It's like a, it's like a dark, flammable substance. And it says, and her soil is going to be turned into sulfur. See, now, if you read that literally, you're picturing some, like, seriously crazy stuff going on. Because if a match comes anywhere near those kinds of streams and that kind of land, <laughs> right? And that is the image. That's the image. The prophet wants you to have that image. That's a good image. But it communicates a truth. And that truth, ultimately, is that this place is abandoned, there's wild animals living in it, and there's thorns growing over the strongholds. But if you literalize it in your mind, you say, well, if it's burning, and look at verse 10, night and day it shall not be quenched. The smoke shall go up forever. If you take that literally, then you have eternal burning in the, in the country of Edom. But then you look at the next verse, you got hawks and porcupines there. How is a hawk and a porcupine going to live on a sulfur land with a pitch stream that's on fire burning forever and ever? You know what I mean? So, like, this is an image. It starts out in Isaiah. You see it in 34. You see it in um, 66. You see Malachi picks it up in Malachi chapter 4. And then it develops over time until you finally get to Revelation. But Revelation is not, it's not disagreeing with what came before. It's just, it's just sort of like recognizing that this is something that applies to all of the wicked, not just Edom. Okay, so uh, that's, that's a little bit on that subject. All right, that's it for this episode. Just wanted to read out a few comments that have come in on previous episodes. First off, Bill Schlegel writes in with a, a great correction here. Really appreciate you taking the time, Bill, to do this. He writes, great podcast about last one on annihilationism. There is so much positive in what you say. I hesitate to offer any critique, but permit me. As you mentioned, the word Gehenna is a transliteration of the Aramaic slash Hebrew Gehenam, the Valley of Hinnom which defines Jerusalem's western and southern sides. Although the burning refuse description is a favorite for tour guides and pastors, Gehenna has nothing to do with the continual burning of garbage in the Valley of Hinnom during the time of Jesus. This idea of continual garbage burning appears first from a medieval Jewish commentator, David Kimchi, around the year 1200, but it is wrong. Here's why. Number one. Garbage that burns is a relatively recent phenomenon. One look in a modern trash can shows that our garbage sure would make a nice fire as it is made up mostly of paper and plastic. But it is all recent junk. Most garbage in the Second Temple period, the time of Jesus, would not have the same flammable character, broken pot shards, some food scraps, etc. But many of these items would be used secondarily, food scraps for animal feed, for example. Number two, most items that would burn in the Second Temple period would be used for controlled heating. Firewood-type material was a valuable commodity. Number three, 
As mentioned above, there is no evidence in contemporaneous Second Temple period sources of a refuse fire constantly burning in the Hinnom Valley. The idea apparently originates from Rabbi, Rabbi David Kimchi's commentary on Psalm 27, which dates to over a thousand years after Jesus. Number four, there is no archaeological evidence of a continually burning fire from the Second Temple period or other. Number five, Jerusalem receives an average of more than 20 inches of rainfall a year, and it all comes in a period of about four months, December to March. During these months, the rain can come down in sheets for days at a time. Nothing outside would keep burning. And number six, during the long dry summer, if a fire started in the Hinnom Valley or anywhere else in the land of Israel, people would immediately put it out as there would be a danger of spreading brush fire. Uh, Schlegel concludes, we need to look no further than the Bible for why Gehenom, Gehenna, came to be the perfect example of how God will judge and purge sin from this earth with a relatively quick but devastating judgment. The people of Israel were sacrificing their children to a pagan god in this valley. This activity is the epitome of how far man can stray from God. God said, quote, I will destroy it. This sin will be stopped. I will make it a valley of slaughter, and their dead bodies will be food for the birds of the air, end quote, Jeremiah chapter 7, 31 to 33, and 19, 4 through 7. Again, thanks for the podcast lecture. Hey, thanks so much, Bill, for taking the time to very lovingly uh, reprove this uh, erroneous notion that I imbibed, and many others have as well, that the Valley of Hinnom was a continual burning place that Jesus could refer to. Although certainly it is embarrassing to uh, have basically no source <laughs> for something that you've been saying for years, I'd rather suffer the embarrassment now and the correction now than go on saying something that is totally wrong. So thanks so much for that. I hope everybody got that, and and, and we can hopefully put an end to this mythical understanding that's probably, as Bill mentioned, propagated by tour agents who are looking to spin out some great tale to impress the tourists that are on their trips. Steve Steele writes in also, and he says, Hi, on last episode, hi, thanks so much for the clear and biblical presentations. Just a thought on the webpage. Can you lock the media player up the top? So when scrolling down to the following, to follow the text, one can still pause the player easily. Well, hey, Steve, as it turns out, it's very limited what I can do with the player. Uh, in fact, I'm not all that big of a fan of the the player that's on there. It's a, it's a plug-in I use that is all part of the podcasting software. And so as it turns out, I'm not, I don't have that ability at present. What I can suggest you do though, is open a second window. And in that case, you can have the player open in one window. And then in your second window, you can browse through the notes. Alternatively, you can get this podcast in your phone or tablet. Uh, just Download a free podcasting app, uh, unless you're using an iPhone, in which case it's already installed. It's the purple icon that says podcast. And uh, just search for Restitudio, or if that's complicated, just search for my name, Sean Finnegan, and you'll be able to find it in there. And in that device, you can play and then read online or vice versa. So hopefully that helps, Steve. Thanks for writing in. One other quick comment came in from John Raftos of Australia. Australia, 
I don't know if I can do an Australian accent. I could try. Uh, he writes in on the YouTube I posted of Anthony Buzzer talking about salvation apart from Christ, which I'm, I'm shocked that more of you did not write in on. I, I thought, I, I think this is a very, very disputed concept, uh, but I guess everyone's just fine with it. So, but anyhow, he says, hello, Sean, good work by Anthony. Also, just let you know, after your interview with Greg Dibel, I have been able to meet with Greg here in Australia who organizes a Unitarian-type Christian groups in Australia, which has been a great blessing. I've also been able to introduce others into this association who have been searching for like-minded people. I've also benefited from Restitutio.org by learning the truth around subjects such as the resurrection hope as being only an earthly one. Initially, when I introduced my thoughts on this topic when it was being examined on a website for ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, I received 40 strokes less one from the online commentators and contributors. This left me disheartened. However, after a short time, this topic was raised again by the authors as requiring re-examination. We are up to part five and will end with a summary and conclusion in part six. I am ecstatic that they have presented the biblical proofs with the resurrection as being only an earthly one. I've suggested that the true nature of Jesus and whether he had a pre-existence could be examined in the future too. Anyway, just to let you know that your good work is bearing fruit in other parts of the world, the message of primitive Christianity is spreading, and your other work is greatly appreciated. Regards, John Raftos. John, thanks so much for writing in. Uh, the, he's referring back to interview 49 with Greg Dibel called They Never Told Me This in Church, where Greg goes through and shares his own testimony as well as some info about the work he's already doing on the East Coast there in Australia. I know that quite a few people are tuning in from Australia, and uh, I'm just so thankful you guys are are part of the Rest Studio community. It's really great to have you. And, uh, you know, my heart uh, for Australia is that you guys would be able to coalesce into groups. I've spoken to a number of folks in the Christian Disciples Church as well, and uh, would love to see more interaction between that that group and the other groups. But uh, anyhow, the uh, what, what Raftos is talking about here, if I if I understand him correctly, is that the Jehovah's Witnesses have a belief that the hundred forty four thousand will be reigning from heaven, while the rest of us second tier Christians will be on earth, sort of uh, doing the grunt work, and. Uh, this is not at all something we see substantiated in Scripture. I mean, there's one text where it says they will reign over the earth. It's Revelation 5.10, if memory serves correctly. And it's the phrase epitesis, epi being the pronoun meaning upon or over. And the JWs take that as over. So they're in the air, I guess, and they're reigning over the earth. Well, generally speaking, people who reign over the earth are also on the earth themselves. So it doesn't in any way necessitate that you are off planet if you are ruling over the earth or upon the earth, whichever way you take that preposition. I, I think it's easy enough to take either way. So uh, yes, there is an earthly hope. I don't see any reason to defy God's original design for people to be on the earth. Rather than looking up and around, I think it's great that, that you know we could be satisfied with the world that God made for us and to look forward to living on this world renewed and rejuvenated 
and with God and his Christ. So uh, thanks, everybody, for writing in. If you would like to write in on this episode and either challenge what I said here or give more or better explanations, as uh, Schlegel did here, that was really great, please visit restitutio.org. It's like the word restitution with no N, dot O-R-G. And you can find theology number eight, Challenging Annihilationism, and leave your comment there. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week where we start on a new topic in theology, the topic of theology proper, and discuss God and his character. So we'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.